Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Sermon Archive. We are glad that you have decided to listen. We hope each and every sermon will exalt God, strengthen God's people, and lead the lost to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at our website at www.trinityweatherford.net under the Contact Us tab. And now, here is Pastor Skyler Spradlin opening God's Word. Please open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians chapter 4 as we come to the end, well towards the end, maybe the beginning of the end of Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians. We pick up this morning in chapter 4 verse 2 and verse 3 and from this point on Paul is seeking to wrap up his letter and he does so as is his custom by giving a few um, Final thoughts, often in kind of rapid-fire succession through the end of a letter, a few things that he wants them to remember or take note of, especially as he begins to bring it all to a close. All of them built upon everything that he's taught in this letter in the first three chapters. Uh, built upon that foundation, flowing from that foundation. So it's not disconnected, but it is a different style. They're much more practical in nature than maybe the things that we consider in the first three chapters. And that is no uh, doubt the case with the two verses we consider in chapter 4 this morning, verse 2 and verse 3. Now I must confess, I find these two verses to be incredibly timely for our church. And not just our church, but for the larger American church. Truth be told, many of us probably have come to these two verses and simply read through them rather briskly and moved on to what we would consider more substantial matters. But I hope to show us that out of these two verses we find a very weighty subject that can apply very, very directly to our hearts, our minds, our attitudes, our behavior. And I think we'll find and I hope see just how um, timely these two verses really are in the grand scheme of our society and our culture and our church and as we even engage in our society and our culture. So look with me in chapter 4 verse 2 and verse 3. And let's read these two verses. And I hope to bring out four points from them. Verse 2, Paul writes and says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We begin this morning with the realization that conflict is a reality even among God's people. Now, Christian community can be incredibly valuable. It can also be incredibly hard. It's an unfortunate reality that most of the time, 
there's some form of disagreement, some form of con uh, conflict existing in any given church of God. The reason is because we occupy a fallen world, right? And in that fallen world, we exist as imperfect people with limited insight, limited wisdom, limited understanding, and maybe most of all, an inclination towards selfishness. A harboring of pride in the heart. A worldview or a perspective or an orientation that centers not on others but upon ourselves. Well, it's no surprise then that in such an environment, conflict will exist. In fact, for the people of God, though we're redeemed, we know we're also flawed. And since we're flawed, it's not a matter of if conflict and disagreement will exist within us. It's a matter of when. And I would put forth this morning that how we handle such conflict and how we handle such disagreement with one another is probably the best window into the health of our church than any other thing we might observe. Sinclair Ferguson says this about conflict in the church. He says, Christian fellowships are often at their worst when dealing with differences of opinion. In some ways, biblically-based churches find it easier to deal with false teaching. But personal differences can be almost as deadly. Dividing the fellowship, sowing seeds of bitterness, diverting attention from central issues to sometimes petty peripheral concerns, sucking energy that should be employed in building up believers and in reaching out to the community. And then I think he rightly says, how effectively we handle these differences may say more about the biblical character of our church life than how we handle even heresy or false teaching. Barring that our disagreements and conflicts aren't over legitimate gospel issues, I agree with Ferguson that what matters most in these moments of conflict is how we as God's people handle them. Another writer, Motyer, says relationships can become atrociously tangled. And Christian relationships are no exception. It doesn't take long for us to examine our experience in church life and to recognize moments where we've been offended. And if we're humble enough, it doesn't take long to confess moments where we've offended others. Lots of our church backgrounds consist of moments of hurt, moments of bickering, moments of arguing, resentment, harsh treatment, conflict. And that's the case even in this Philippian church. It doesn't matter how healthy they are. It doesn't matter how much Paul loves this church. They are not immune to the reality of conflict. These two women in verse 2 seem to be in a bitter impasse of conflict and disagreement. We know very little about them. 
We know their names. We know their church affiliation. We know a little bit about their hearts. They seem to be laborers in the gospel, fellow workers. They're Christian women. But what we know them mostly for is that they're engaged in disagreement. To a public degree, to a, in, in a public nature, to a large degree where Paul has to publicly address them. You are not getting along. And it's to a certain point now that Paul recognizes their disagreement is affecting the whole church. Now some people throughout the years have tried to say that uh, these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, they were church leaders of some sort. And that's why their disagreement deserved attention from Paul. That's why their conflict was affecting the whole church. They're in some ways leaders within the church. And that may be true. The main point though is it doesn't matter if you're a leader in the church or not. Conflict among God's people affects the whole body. Especially conflict that bears this kind of resemblance. Conflict that's public. Conflict that's drawn out. Conflict that others know about. It affects the entire body of God's people. You see, things like unity, harmony, peace, and love among God's people, church, they're so important to the life of a church that if they're threatened, then the very mission, even the very existence of that church is threatened. We don't have to wonder why Paul would take up this issue with these two women. We don't have to wonder why Paul would think it's so important that he spill ink on paper at the end of this letter to an entire church to address this matter. It's because we as God's people need to exist in harmony. We must pursue unity. We must exist in love. We must let conflict, though it is coming and certain, not reign supreme among us. In other words, we must be a people who learn how to handle our disagreements in a godly and biblical way and not let our disagreements handle us. God's people though they know conflict will, agree, or will uh, exist among them, should not let conflict be normal or normalized. It's a sad reality when our reputation becomes one of bickering. It's a sad reality when the community witness of our church is marked by division and hostility and opposition. God's people must instead be marked by things like forgiveness and reconciliation and the kind of unity that can only be explained by a true supernatural divine work in our lives, namely the converting power of the gospel. The point here is simple. 
If you in your heart are harboring resentment or bitterness or hatred or if in your heart you have unresolved conflict toward a brother or a sister, let's just be clear. It affects the whole body. It's not a disease or an infection that just affects the arm or the leg or the eye or the ear. It affects us all. Well, the second thing that we consider from this passage is not only the reality of conflict, but the need to agree. That's what Paul's really getting at in verse 2. There's a need for these two women to agree. And so Paul tenderly engages them. He calls them to really act like he acts towards them. He wants them to love each other as much as he loves this church. Remember back in verse 1 of chapter 4, he described these brothers and sisters as those whom he loves and longs for. He described them as his joy and his crown. He calls them my beloved. He wants these two women to see each other just like he sees them. As those whom he loves. As their beloved. Now it's telling in verse 2. That Paul not once mentions the actual issue of contention between these two women. So we don't know what the disagreement is. We don't know what the conflict's about. We don't know why they're arguing. We don't know why they're at odds. We don't know if it's over a method, a thought, a practice. We know it's not over a doctrine. Paul would have likely expressed the correct viewpoint if it was a doctrine that was at stake here. It's likely something based on preference. Based on opinion. His absence of mentioning it is telling. He also doesn't care to comment on who's right and who's wrong. The main issue at stake for Paul is the broken fellowship. I find this to be where we see the timeliness of this passage. In an age where we have to be right. When we cannot tolerate being wrong. When we have to have our way. When things have to be done according to our standards. When we build things on our preferences. To then hear a, an apostle write and say, none of those things matter. What matters most is your fellowship with each other. What matters most is your relationship with one another. That's why he tells them to agree in the Lord. It's the same, same thing he said in verse 1 of this chapter. He just said, stand firm in the Lord. Now I want you to agree in the Lord. It doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong here. It doesn't matter what the disagreement is or, or, or what the subject is about. You two women are dividing the church. You're not relating to each other as sisters in Christ. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we need to learn that it's not a matter of right and wrong. It's not a matter of winning an argument or losing an argument. It's not a matter of having it done this way or that way. 
It's not even a matter of having it done the best way. More often than not, it's a matter of having unity with your brothers and your sisters. It's a matter of living in harmony with one another. It's a matter of existing in the kind of relationship that displays the beauty of belonging collectively to Christ. It's not as if Paul doesn't know what the issue is between these two women. The fact that he writes about them to address them knows, uh, it tells us that he at least knows what the issue is. It's just that the issue is not that important to him. It's not that he's scared to address the issue. He's done that before, namely to the Corinthian church. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10. He's addressed food offered to idols. He's addressed their, their allegiance to this pastor versus that church leader. He's addressed conflicts before. He's even engaged in conflicts before. Think about him writing to the Galatian church to correct them. Think about him confronting Paul, I mean Peter, to correct him. He's not shirking his responsibility to do what's right. He's not hiding from conflict. He's not being a, a coward by not addressing the issue. He's telling us something. He's telling these two women something. Your issue doesn't matter. What matters is how you treat each other. What matters is that you're not getting along. What matters is that you're not locked together in this Christian relationship that you're supposed to exist in. Dennis Johnson, in commenting on this passage, I think this is a helpful statement. He says this. He says, Paul invites and urges Euodia and Syntyche not merely to decide who is right or even to come up with a compromise acceptable to both of them. His concern is that their disagreement over whatever issue it may be and for however long it has persisted. His concern is that their disagreement has disrupted their ability to exhibit in their relationship the unity that's theirs in the Lord. Perhaps one of the greatest lessons I think the church needs to learn today is that not all matters no matter how strongly you may feel about them, our gospel matters. Not all matters are clear cut. And certainly, not all matters are worth dividing the fellowship of the saints. That actually more often than we probably want to admit, most matters seem to be about preference and opinion. Perhaps we need to learn most of all that the relationship or the unity that we have with God's people is typically more important than whatever cause might divide us. It has been my experience that rarely in church conflicts do issues rise to gospel level issues. Most of the time, it's our pride and selfishness getting in the way. It's 
So what does this mean? I think it means at least this, that God's people must be willing to compromise. I certainly don't mean compromise gospel, the gospel. I don't mean compromise on the scriptures and, and church approved top tier issues. I mean, Christians must be able to embrace and be willing to embrace compromise when it comes to their preferences, their opinions. Listen, even their rights. Isn't that what Christ did? Just a few verses earlier in chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, Paul t- tells us exactly that that's what Christ did. He says, though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Literally, He means He didn't count equality with God something to be used for His own advantage. It wasn't an advantageous aspect of His life. He didn't pull out His equality with God to trump this or to trump that. Our Lord embraced humility. He laid aside His rights. Now obviously I'm not talking about all of our rights. I'm talking about rights in a relational circumstance. In a relational context. Which I would dare say is probably one of the most controversial things I've ever said. To call somebody to lay down their rights for another... To suspend what, what is their God-given right? Well, the Bible actually teaches that. It uses language like self-sacrifice and self-denial and selflessness. To look at a, a brother and sister and to be able to say, I will lay down my rights for the sake of peace, for the sake of harmony, for the sake of unity. Church, that's not weakness. That's Christ-likeness. Our world often equates compromise with weakness. And humility with things like weakness. And in the Christian camp, we equate compromise with betrayal. That you're not standing by your conviction. You're not sticking to your guns. That you're a wimp and you're caving to pressure. but a solid good dose of compromise is what the church needs. You need to be willing out of love and humility to lay down your rights for the sake of your brother and your sister. Paul's already taught this. In chapter 2, I hope you remember. Verse 3 and verse 4, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's calling these two Christian women, godly women, not to do anything he hasn't already said. And not to do anything he hasn't already done himself. At the end of his life, he'll write to Timothy and he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. 
I've spent myself for my Lord. I've spent myself for the well-being and welfare of my brothers and sisters. I've laid myself out bare. Given up every claim. Every right. He even tells churches several times in the New Testament, I don't even appeal to my apostolic right over you. I'm, I'm not even appealing to my right to demand compensation from you to preach the gospel. Because I don't want to be a burden to you. I don't want to hinder you. In other words, I'm putting you first. That's His calling to these two women. That's His calling to you and I. It's always been a, a, a worldly uh, practice to put ourselves first. It's always a fleshly practice to think that we're more important than the next person, that our opinion matters more, that our way is right, their way is wrong, our way is better, their way is worse. But I think, I think such thinking today has... Amplified. I really am debating even now whether to say this or not, and usually that means I shouldn't, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. But church, I've heard the way we talk at times. I've watched the way we've conducted ourselves. I've seen the things on social media that we post. And I know you and you know me and I know where our weaknesses are at and you know where my weaknesses are at. You know this is convicting. You know that more often than not, we're not putting others first and ourselves last. It is a tremendous burden to watch the harmful rhetoric of the culture seep itself into the church. To watch and to listen to Christians talk Act and behave just like the world. You know that we can be right in our content and wrong in our attitude and be wrong. You know that we can be like Pharisees and be right according to the truth and wrong in our behavior and wrong in our application of it and therefore be wrong. Christ calls us to deny ourselves. Christ calls us to put others before ourselves. Christ calls us to be sheep, not wolves. We don't hunt. We don't attack. We don't fight. We're sheep. We're tender and meek and gentle. This embrace, if the internet's any accurate gauge, 
this embrace in, in the American church at large of lambasting brothers and sisters with harmful rhetoric and behavior. And that's not becoming of God's people. And please, not, uh, in our fold, let us not succumb to it. Let us not hammer one another with our words. Let us not isolate one another with our actions, our attitudes, our behavior. I refuse to believe that the best way to articulate and defend the truth of our Lord and Savior is through arguing and fighting and bickering. I refuse it. The best way for you and I to articulate the gospel and to defend the truth of the scriptures is to live in such harmony and peace and love and unity that there's no other explanation than that the message we proclaim really is true and has transformed us. I don't think I'm too far off of what Paul's intention is here if I'm off at all. Chapter 4, verse 2. Paul cares nothing here in this verse. Spills no ink, devotes no space to the subject of their disagreement. He cares only about their relationship. Only about their unity. Only about their fellowship. Only about their embrace with one another. They are sisters in Christ. And that is Paul's primary concern. And so he says, agree. Don't figure out who's right. Don't try to win the argument. Agree. It's another way of saying, come together. Lay it aside. There's two ways he, he wants this agreement to be accomplished because that's our, that's our question, right? When we're at an impasse with brothers and sisters in Christ and the mandate is to agree in the Lord, how do we do that? How do we bring about that agreement? Well, the first one is in that key phrase, in the Lord. It means according to the will of the Lord. Uh, in submission to the Lord. Seeking the Lord. Even in serving the Lord. It means the Lord Himself. The will of the Lord, the word of the Lord is the key to our harmony, our unity, our agreement. Truth be told, and we even tell this to people joining our church, there is no expectation here that you have to agree to every single thing 100% all the time. Because by God's grace, we're growing people and we grow in our understanding. We grow in our perspective. And some of those things develop over time. We don't all agree on the same things here. Agreement here isn't blind conformity. It's something else. Agreement in the Lord is really to have your priorities right in the viewing of one another. I think so much of our church's conflict, 
our church, other churches, whoever, however you want to take that, comes because we stop seeking the Lord and start seeking our own way. We start to entertain our flesh and we start to entertain our pride. We think the church exists for us. To meet our needs, to serve our agenda, to tickle our fancy. We use the Scriptures for our cause, to build our kingdom, further our agenda. See, church, the unit... Unity and harmony that we're supposed to have, it hangs by a single thread. But that thread is Christ Himself, and it's strong enough to transcend all of our differences, all of our opinions, all of our conflict, all of our disagreement. The first key to agreeing, first key to coming together, is to center ourselves upon the Lord. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says, how can two people who think differently be brought to think in the same way? Well, by remembering that they are both in the Lord. They are His and not their own. And they are both His. And it would be inconsistent, therefore, for either of them to insist on her own way when they both belong to a Savior who had not insisted on His way. The second thing that I think helps us to agree. Paul mentions in verse 3, we need the help of others. We might call this accountability. Paul mentions here in verse 3, an unnamed person. I'm not going to take any time to try to guess who that may be. He calls this person, this true companion, he calls, calls him to help these women. Help. Intervene. That's, that's counterintuitive to our American upbringing. We're, we're brought up not to stick our nose in other people's business. To not involve ourselves in other people's controversies and conflict. But that's not always the case in the life of the church. Sometimes brothers and sisters have to intervene for the good of other brothers and sisters. And that's what Paul's calling this true companion to do. To intervene. To help. Charles Spurgeon takes that word help and he runs back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I think it's verse 28 where help is mentioned as a gift to the church. Those who have the gift of helping is a gift of the church, gift to the church from Christ. And by helping, it doesn't mean volunteers or laborers. It means peacemakers. Those can, who can genuinely contribute to the well-being of others. Those who can genuinely serve for the well-meaning well-being of others. Spurgeon says we need more helpers in the church. Peacemakers. Those with the gift of wisdom in regards to relationships. Those with the gift of discernment. Those with the gifts of kindness and Tenderness to help resolve conflict. Though such callings may be messy, they're of infinite value. How are we to agree? 
we're to remember that we're people in the Lord. That we're also accountable to a church. That if we seek the Lord together and submit ourselves to the church together, conflict tends to melt away. Well, the third thing here, Paul's told told us that conflict is a reality. He's told us that we need to agree. Thirdly, he tells us we need to remember the power of mutual service. These two women, uh, whatever they are and whatever they're doing, they're at least described in verse 3 by Paul as laborers of the gospel. Even laboring side by side with Paul. He calls them fellow workers. Co-laborers of Christ's mission. Serving together has tremendous benefit. It has a way of binding the hearts of two people. It has a way of rallying people to the Lord's cause and not their own cause. It has a way of building trust. And expressing humility and unifying around success. And maybe most important, serving together has a way of reminding us of the necessity of each other in our lives. There's power when we lock arms and further the name of Christ. There's power when we live together, and work together. There's power when we devote ourselves to the same goal, to the same agenda. Paul's already used this language in chapter 1. If you look at the end of chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. Paul's calling these two sisters to the same thing he's already called the entire church to. Strive side by side, laboring together in the gospel for the sake of Christ, melts conflict away. You see, if we turn our eyes from upwards and outwards, turn our eyes from looking up to Christ and outwards to the lost, and we turn our eyes inward and downward upon ourselves and this earthly life, That's a breeding ground for disagreement and selfishness and pride and conflict. Healthy churches look up to Christ and out to a dying world. They reach out to that dying world. They're gospel-minded people. The day we forget that we're here to share the gospel, that we're here to evangelize, is the day conflict takes significant hold in our fellowship. But fourthly, real quick, I think it's the final healing balm of conflict, the final nail in the coffin to disagreement. 
Notice how he describes these two women at the end of verse 3. Their names are in the book of life. They belong to God. They're Christians headed for eternity in heaven. They're saved. And even if you don't think they're acting like it, they're redeemed. They belong to your Savior. Christ spilled His blood for them. They are bought by the Lord Jesus. A treasured possession. A sheep belonging to the flock. Heaven has a way of putting everything else into proper perspective, doesn't it? Heaven has a way of rightly ordering our minds. And rightly minimizing our problems and our preferences. In other words, earthly minded people are the ones who can't let go of conflict. Who insist upon their own way. Who put their needs before the needs of their brother or their sister. But heavenly minded people count others more significant than themselves. Heavenly minded people lay down their rights for the sake of their brother or their sister. Heavenly minded people have enough wisdom and insight to know that conflict is always around the corner in an imperfect group of people, but that it doesn't have to reign there. You know what Paul has done here in these two verses? He's addressed the reality of conflict in a church. Something we shouldn't shy away from. The, the Bible's not ashamed of that. It doesn't mean we're hypocrites. It means that we're fallen people. Redeemed and flawed at the same time. Pilgrims in a broken land heading for perfection. He's addressed that there's going to be conflict. That it can exist even among godly people. But essentially what he's told us on how to address it and deal with it is to remember who we're dealing with. We're dealing with people who are in the Lord. If there's a conflict between you and a brother or you and a sister, there's three people involved in that conflict. You, the brother, and Christ. When we have disagreements with one another, we're not disagreeing with an enemy. We're not in conflict with somebody who's against us. We're in conflict with a brother or a sister who's in the Lord. We're in conflict with a laborer of Christ, a servant of the King, a worker for the Gospel. We're in conflict with someone that we're going to share heaven with. Someone that Christ died for. Someone that Christ redeemed. If we remember those things, that this is a person, not an enemy, that this is a person specifically who belongs to Christ, who was bought by Christ, who's saved by Christ, who serves Christ, it has a way of reminding us perhaps this disagreement isn't that big of a deal. 
And I can lay aside my cause, my concern, for the sake of peace and harmony. Well, Paul writes and he tells these two women to agree and he tells them to agree based upon who they are. They're not strangers. They're not foreigners. They're sisters. And they're to exhibit a certain kind of relationship with one another. You and I are to exhibit a certain kind of relationship with one another that screams of the glory and presence of Christ. I took the liberty to jot down a few things I think this passage demands of us in terms of a response. The first one I wrote is repentance. There's repentance that needs to happen, mainly because not a one of us here haven't offended somebody else. We need to ask the Lord for forgiveness for how we have sometimes treated a brother or a sister. We need to ask the Lord to convict us for where we've ignorantly hurt a brother or a sister. The second thing I wrote down is very closely related. Confession. But by that I mean both confession to God and maybe confession to another. Is there a brother or sister in this church family that you have wronged? Maybe you need to confess that to them. I wrote down apologizing. You know how easy it is to apologize? And yet so few people do it. And yet it yields massive dividends. Finally, I wrote down, reconcile. We must be a repenting people. Confessing our sins to God. Asking for forgiveness. And if need be, confessing our sin to a brother or a sister if we've wronged them. We need to be an apologizing people. We don't have to harbor pride. In fact, we shouldn't harbor pride. We should be quick of all people in the world to embrace humility, admit when we're wrong, and ask for forgiveness. We need to actually take steps to reconcile with a brother or a sister. I know what the enemy is doing to many of your consciences right now. As the Lord has brought a person or a situation to your mind, the enemy or your flesh has just as quickly said, it's not really that big of a deal. It's not that important. It's a, it was a harmless instant, a one time. I'll just forget about it, move on, sweep it under the bridge like it's no big deal. It'll go away. It was just one word, one instant, one lapse of judgment. All designed to keep us quiet before God and before one another. God's Word tells us, though it may be hard, there's liberty in confession. There's forgiveness and liberty in repentance. And there's healing in apologizing and in reconciliation. Though it may be hard, 
It is healthy for us to resolve our issues. Because like these two godly women, our conflicts affect the whole health of the body. I told you this earlier that we were going to do things a little differently this morning. Today it was our time of prayer of confession. And as I was sitting this morning thinking through this text again, I thought, oh, why not move that to the end and have a time of confession based upon this passage? And so that's what I'd like to do. I'd like you to take just a moment, you and the Lord, confess if there's any issue between you and a brother or you and a sister in Christ. Maybe you want to take this time to go to a brother or a sister and ask them for forgiveness. At the least, ask God to show you where you have erred and ask Him for forgiveness. The beauty of confession, we have this promise in His Word that if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Nehemiah 8 says, You are a God ready to forgive. Go to Him with your confession and you'll find a God slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, gracious and merciful, ready to forgive. After a moment of you and the Lord, I'll pray.